Well, our sermon text today is, is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. We have been going through the Gospel of Mark for, for a while now, and we are just past the halfway mark of the book. Our text again, Mark 9, verses 1 to 13. Our custom here is to stand for the reading of God's word, and so I'll invite you to do that at this time. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down uh, the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this morning we're looking at, it's kind of a repeated thing here, but we're looking at one of maybe the most well-known events that happened in the earthly, earthly life and ministry of Christ, but it's also, I think, in some ways, one of the least understood events in the earthly life and ministry of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is, uh, we call it the transfiguration of Christ. Now, the actual events, uh, as set forward in the text, are, are pretty straightforward. They seem pretty clear enough as to what it was that, that happened, but the meaning and significance of the transfiguration, I think, is often uh, easy to, to overlook uh, or even to, uh, to mistake or to miss, you know, it's it's one of those things that we, you, you get from the from the event and, and from seeing what Mark says about it and the other gospel writers uh, that it must have been awfully impressive. But it's not always easy to see what you're supposed to get from it. What what are, what are we supposed to learn from this uh, from this event? What is the if you if I can put it this way? What's the value of it to you in your Christian life? Your Christian. Uh, walk. If I could set the stage a little bit to give us a little bit of a catch us up on the background. It's been a, a couple weeks uh, since we were looking at it. In the previous chapter, just before this, in the end of Mark chapter 8, we saw Peter's great confession of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, who, who do men say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, you know, his great, short, to the point confession, you are the Christ. And in some ways, we saw that that's kind of the, it's not just the center you know, lengthwise of Mark's gospel, but it's kind of the high point. It's the, it's the thing that Mark has been driving to for eight chapters, trying to teach us. It's what Jesus 
was trying to teach his disciples all that time through the miracles, his teachings, everything else, was that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And Mark, Mark got it, right? He understood at least uh, in some way what that, what that meant. He understood the identity of Christ better than, than some of the other people who thought he may have been Elijah or some other prophet or someone else. Uh, but what's the very next thing you see Jesus doing? In, at the end of chapter 80, Mark says, you are, or Jesus, rather, Peter says, you are the Christ. And we know that, that elsewhere that Jesus commended him and told him, you know, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he starts talking about the cross. As soon as Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ, this is what Jesus says in Mark 8.31. He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So, you know, before, some, you know, we see Jesus at, at times teaching in parables, kind of beating around the bush, uh, you know, making analogies and things. Here, none of that. He sets it out as plainly, Mark even uses the word plainly in verse 32. He taught this stuff to them plainly. Here's the way it is. Don't make any mistakes. Don't misunderstand me. Don't miss the, the point. And why is that? Why does he do that? It's as if he wanted Peter and the others to know, okay, you've, you've got the fact that I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Well, let me tell you what it means to be the Christ and the Messiah. What kind of, of Christ did I come to be? Did I come to be in glory my first time around and overthrow Rome and restore the glory days of Israel this time around? And the answer to that is a resounding no. That he came, uh, the suffering that he talks about, his suffering the Son of Man suffering many things and being rejected by his own people and being killed and rising from the dead. That, that isn't uh, something that's interrupting his mission. It's the point of his mission, without which there is no salvation for his people. So Peter and the others had to understand what kind of, of Messiah or Christ that he came to be, that he came to suffer many things. He came to be rejected by his people. He came to be executed as if he were a criminal. And he came to rise again on the third day. All of that to save his people from his sins. Now, you know, if you've been raised in the faith, if you've been reading the Bible since a young since you were, you know, this high kind of thing, and you've heard you've read these stories over and over again and you're very, very familiar with them, that's a good thing. But sometimes when we're that familiar with these kinds of passages, it's easy for us to um, to kind of forget that that would have been a very hard thing for Peter and the others to hear. Peter and the rest of the disciples, when they heard about the cross and the resurrection from Christ, even, even plainly, you know, as, as Christ said these things, their, their response certainly wasn't, well, of course. Well, of course that's the way the Messiah was going to be. Of course that's what was going to happen to you as the Christ. We kind of had all that figured out. If anything, it's the exact opposite. What did Peter do? Not so, Lord. And he received quite the rebuke for Christ for that, didn't he? Get thee behind me, Satan. Maybe the harshest rebuke any believer has ever had, had to hear. So the message of the cross, even to the apostles, was a tough pill for them to swallow. It was probably the very hardest thing they could possibly imagine happening to Jesus as the Messiah. Well, as we saw last time that we were in the book here, uh, in the next two chapters, it's, it's, it's three chapters in a row, Jesus makes the same kind of statement. He tells them he's going to suffer many things 
and, and be rejected and die and rise from the dead. It's, he's trying to make a point. He's trying to make sure they don't, they don't miss the point. He wants them to have a clear view of what it meant to, for him to be the Christ and also what it meant for them and for us to be disciples of the Messiah, to be following him. Well, here in our text in Mark 9, verse 1, we read uh, something the Lord Jesus says to his, his disciples after all of that. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he talks about suffering. He talks about being rejected by the leaders of his own people, being killed and rising from the dead. And you, you, know, you can almost, if you were there, it's almost like you could hear the disciple, the wheels turning and them saying, Why, what about the glory? What about the glory of the Messiah? There's other parts in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have called it that, of course, that talked about the glory of the one that was to come. And so what does he say in verse 1? Oh, that's going to happen. That's not going to happen here. That's not going to happen here and right now. But it's going to happen. And not only is it going to happen, but some standing here with him at that time were not going to taste death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean by the kingdom of God coming with, with power? What is he referring to there? That, and what does he mean by the fact that at least a few of these people that were in that crowd were going to live to see it? What does that, what does that mean? Now, one thing I hope should be obvious, although I, I know some people have, have mistaken this to be referring to the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. I hope it's obvious that it, that's not what it's referring to at least not initially. When the Lord comes again with glory to judge the living and the dead, as the Nicene Creed says, the scripture says in Revelation 1-7 that every eye shall see him. Not a select few. His second coming is not secret. It's not just for the select few on the inn who know the password. It's not reserved just for a few. It's, it's for everyone. And the return of Christ did not happen, I hope it's obvious even more, that it did not happen during the lifetime of the apostles. So that no one, has, no one has missed it. Well, commentators and scholars have offered a number of suggestions as to what this might mean, this coming of the kingdom with power, but I think the simplest and best explanation is right under our noses in the text. And it's that Jesus Christ was talking about what we see here in the opening verses of chapter 9. He's talking about, first and foremost, the transfiguration of Christ. Now, you, you could say in some sense the transfiguration uh, is, is not just a snapshot of Christ's glory and his return, but it's kind of a small part of what's to come. It's a foretaste or the first fruits in some way of what is sure to come at his return in glory. That it's also a foretaste of, of the resurrection in power. It's a foretaste of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of, of Acts. It's all part and parcel, one and the same part of the whole. But I think the most, the most clear explanation, the, the most uh, simple explanation, is that this, this seeing of the kingdom of God coming with power is referring to what we see here in our text in the transfiguration. Now, what, what actually took place in the transfiguration? Look at verses 2 through, through 8 where Mark writes this, after six days, so he even gives us the timeline. He said some standing here weren't going to taste death till they see it. And then he says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So only three of the 12 got to go. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them uh, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So here, Peter, James, and John, they have the privilege, uh, the great honor of having a uh, kind of a preview of sorts of the kingdom of God coming with power. They get to see firsthand the glory of Christ. And, and notice that you know, Jesus didn't take everybody with him. And I think the fact that he took three of them is a hint that this goes back to verse 1 about some getting to see it and some not. Some who were there before uh, that were standing there were, were not going to taste death till they saw the kingdom of God coming with power. And I think that some is these three, Peter, James, and John. Now Mark says Jesus was, quote, verse 2, transfigured before them. Now the Greek word that's translated as transfigured there is metamorpho, and we get, you might even, from me saying that, you might think of some words that we have in the English from that. Metamorphosis. It comes from that, from that Greek word. What is a metamorphosis? It's to change. It's to change from one thing, in a sense, to, to another. It has the idea of being transformed. Uh, when you think uh, of Romans 12, verse 2, it's the same word that Paul uses there when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Same word. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, how, in what way was Jesus transformed or transfigured before them? What, what changed about Christ? Did his essential nature suddenly change? No, no, his outward appearance was changed. Even the appearance of his clothing was changed. It says his, his clothing, what, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You, you can't imagine how white, uh, how white his garments looked, how shining they looked. Um, so Peter, James, and John, what they're really getting here is a, just a small glimpse of the glory of Christ. And not only that, but they got to see two other people, two other rather famous people from the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses, he says that there were, appeared to them uh, so they could see them. Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't mention what they were talking about. Mark doesn't give us that, that detail, but Luke 9.31, one of the parallel accounts of the transfiguration, uh, there it says that, that, uh, that they appeared in glory. So it wasn't just Jesus that was glorified in a sense. They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Luke 9.31 which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What does it mean to speak of his departure? His, his death. Talk, they're, they're talking about his death uh, in Jerusalem and resurrection. They're talking about the cross. Jesus just talked about the cross when he talked about the Son of Man being killed and rising from the dead after three days. Well, here we see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus with Jesus about the cross as well. Notice it, it's, it's a small detail, but it shouldn't skip our notice there that in, in Luke's passage, Moses and Elijah shared in Christ's glory. It's easy to skip that. It's easy to just get caught up in, wow, they get to see, you know, we, we would call them famous people, but 
you know, most, the, the, big, the biggest guys are the biggest guys in the Old Testament, in a sense. Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament uh, witness to God's, God's plan of redemption. Um, but they shared in Christ's glory. And what a wonderful foreshadowing that that, that that is of what awaits you if you're a child of God. Every child of God, as amazing as it may sound to say, it's hard to even fathom what this would be like. Every one of us that is in Christ, one day, by God's grace, you will share in Christ's glory. You will share in all the things that he accomplished and did for our salvation. We are blessed with every blessing in him that he earned in our place. And I think that that sharing in Christ's glory is probably one of the most neglected truths. I guess it's the theme of the sermon today. One of the most neglected truths and promises of God's word uh, in all of scripture. The sharing in, in the glory of Christ. Romans 8 verses 16 to 17, a passage you've probably read a thousand times. Um, some of you, it says there, Paul writes Romans 8, 16 to 17. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And then what does he say? In order that we also, that we may also be glorified with him. Part of what makes heaven heaven Maybe the main thing you think of is, is, is being with the Lord, seeing the Lord, seeing the glory of the Lord, and being able to see the glory of the Lord. But we will also, in some sense, be glorified, as Paul says, with him. The sons of God will share in the glory of the Son of God by his grace. So you and I as believers are called to suffer with Christ. We're called to suffer for Christ, for his name. But we are also called to share in his glory after that. And as Paul says later on in the very next verse in Romans 8, those sufferings, as great as they may be, and Paul suffered greatly. He was, he was martyred under Nero for the gospel. The worst sufferings you can ever endure in this life for the sake of Christ do not begin to compare. Paul says they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in you in Christ one day. Well, what was the disciples' reaction to all this? How did they respond to this, this vision that they got to see this sneak preview of Christ's glory? Can you even imagine what it must have been like? I know it's hard to put yourself in that kind of, you know, put yourself in their sandals, so to speak, and be up on top of, of the mountain. Um, I know when I, when I was a kid, uh, a couple years ago at least, um, you know, I would read these kinds of stories and think, man, it would have been really neat, you know, to, to be at, for instance, the Transfiguration, to get to be one of those three you know, to get the uh, the premier seats. You know, you're the VIP, the VIP package among the uh, the apostles, and get to be on the inn and go see, you know, this this great sight. Get to go see Moses. Get to go see Elijah. Yeah, maybe you'd want to. Uh, if you, good thing they didn't have uh, Facebook and and uh, smartphones back then. You'd be we'd be wasting our time posting pictures of it. Um, does it make you jealous? You know, do you read passages like this and think to yourself, how amazing would it have been? <coughs> to get to, to be there. Well, how did the disciples react to it? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be quite so jealous just yet. Verse 5, Peter says to Jesus, Mark writes, Rabbi, or teacher, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It's good that we are here. Kind of sounds like the understatement of all understatements. 
you know, but you know, it's hard to tell on the written page, and Mark doesn't give us you know any kind of clue. But you kind of wonder what his tone of voice might have been. Was it kind of, hey, this is great, this is good that we're here? You know, if you're a kid, you you picture him screaming, yay, it's great that we're here. But I think it's not quite the enthusiasm that you might think of if you look at just that that one verse. And notice that Peter suggests making three tents. Three tabernacles, three tents, one for each of them. You know, it's easy to read that and say, you know, this is Peter's way of saying, you know, we're on the literal mountaintop experience. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it kind of was, right? You can't imagine him having seen something better. Let's, let's just stay up here. Let's just make this permanent. Or let's at least stay up here for a good while. They'll wait. You know, the other, the other nine disciples, they'll, they'll wait around like Moses. Remember Moses went up on the top of the mountain to receive revelation from God. The people, the people waited. And when he came down, he came down. And when he was ready, he came down. Well, you notice one thing. Why three tents? How many people were there? By my count, I'm not, I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty sure it's six. Were, you know, were they going to sleep on the ground and the other three got to have the good, uh, you know, the good place to, to sleep? Why not six tents? I think a clue might be in verse 6 where Mark says that Peter did not know what to say. Why? Peter's kind of the spokesman. He gets, the, he gets all the blame and all the, uh, all the uh, none of the glory, right? He says, did not know what to say for they, not just Peter, they were terrified. Peter wasn't sitting there going, this is terrific. I, these guys, they don't know what they're missing. I can't wait to tell them. Uh, they don't know what, uh, you know, lucky me, I'm on the inside three. I'm on the, uh, the right track. He says, they were terrified. And I, I, I think the disciples may have actually wanted them to go inside the tents to shield them from the sight, the overpowering sight of the glory that they were witnessing. Let me make a tent for you guys because you're scaring me. Basically, let's let's give you something to hide behind. Let's, we'll stay, but you know, I uh, need a little bit of a of a, of a breather here. And either way, it's it's pretty clear from the text. Whatever his motive was, uh, he was terrified of it. And Mark even says. It's practically he's saying you know, he didn't know what he was saying. He was kind of just blathering on. He, you know, you ever get like you ever, you ever be around a nervous talker? I at times have been a nervous talker. Ask Rebecca. You know, just all of a sudden you just won't stop talking. That's probably this. You know, Peter's just. Uh, I think I left the stove on. You know, I'm going to go. Um, you know, now is that a normal is that a normal response? Is it does his response match what we would have expected from the sight that he was seeing? I would say that it absolutely did. It's the most natural response for a sinful man in, to, to be in the presence of a holy God, to see the glory of God. It's the most common response you find in Scripture. You know, in, in the Scriptures, read through your Old and New Testaments, you don't, you, what you don't find is even a prophet. You think of prophets and apostles, you think, you know, if anybody could see, could see God and live, it's them. If anybody could see God and see the glory of Christ and not lose it, it'd be them. Now, if we saw it, that's one thing. We're just us. But the apostles and prophets, but, you know, when you see Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, he sees a vision of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord, and what's his reaction? He doesn't even do what Peter says. He doesn't say, hey, it's good that I'm here. What does he say? He says, uh, woe is me. 
You know, that's not the old hee-haw, you know, doom, despair, and agony on me, woe is me. It's, woe is a, is a prophetic pronunciation of curse. It's, it's a pronouncement of curse. He, and he, he pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me, uh, he says, for I am lost, or I am undone, or ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, if you remember that vision, the thresholds of the temple were shaking. Well, they weren't the only things shaking. Isaiah thought that the axe was about to fall. Now, by God's grace, what, what also happened in that vision is one of the seraphim took a coal from the, from the altar. The place of sacrifice touched his, his mouth and said, Your sin is atoned for. And then God said, Whom shall I send? Then what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. He went from woe is me to here am I. But when he saw the glory of the Lord, it was woe is me. It was, I'm going to die. That's what he thought. Now, what about the New Testament? For example, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.17, the, the Apostle John, he saw a vision of the glorified and reigning Christ. And it says in that text in verse 16 that Christ's face, quote, his face was like the sun shining. In other words, he probably couldn't even look directly at it. Can you look right at the sun? I wouldn't recommend it. He, he couldn't even look at Christ because of his glory. It was so bright. And what does it say there in verse 17? It says that John, quote, fell at his feet as though dead. That's, that's just good common sense for a sinner, seeing the glory of Christ in some sense to be, to be afraid. Now the transfiguration event and the presence of Moses it, it brings, at least to my mind, it brings to mind the words of Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. It says there, this is talking about Moses going up and receiving uh, revelation from God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, it was shining, because he had been talking with God. I think the, Moses' presence here during this this event is meant to jog our memories, to point us back, among other things, to this event uh, on, on Mount Sinai. So this, this was not the first time that Moses' face was shining in glory on top of a mountain. It's at least, well, it happened multiple times back in Exodus, but it also happened here in the book of Mark. And what was happening to Moses there? Moses, in and of himself, wasn't a glorious being. Moses, it wasn't his own glory shining out of his face. You know, we sometimes use that as kind of a euphemism. Somebody's just beaming. You know, they're so happy, they're smiling big. You know, he didn't use, you know, the, the crest strips on his mouth. His teeth just weren't a little brighter. I mean, he was shining. You know, if it was dark, it would have been kind of freaky looking to have Moses coming down the mountain and, woo, this glow. And, and what, what happened? He's reflecting, in some sense, the glory of God after meeting with him. And what was the reaction of the children of Israel when they saw him? You know, were they were like, whoa, Moses, you know, come here, look in this reflective, you know, plate and take a look at yourself. Uh, no, they, they weren't they weren't fascinated by it at all. Uh, they weren't they weren't uh, probably happy about it. They were afraid to come near him. Exodus thirty four thirty, they were afraid to come near him. In fact, they were so afraid to come near him that what did Moses have to do? Moses covered his face with a veil to keep from scaring them. But when did he do it? After delivering God's message to the people. Think about that. 
Moses' face, the, the glow, is, as we're going to see later on, the glow was kind of going away, but it was still bright enough to scare the people. But while he was delivering God's message to the people, he didn't cover it up at all. When, when he was speaking in the name of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, so to speak, uh, it was just fine for them to see the, the kind of the after effects of that uh, Shekinah glory radiating off of Moses' face after he was done talking to them, when he was no longer speaking for the Lord, he covered his face with, with the veil. And it says in, in, that, in that chapter that this wasn't a one-time thing. Every time Moses would go up to talk with the Lord and get a message from the Lord for the people, he'd come down the hill and here we go again, his face is glowing again, and he has to put the veil back over his face. So the transfiguration of Christ here in Mark chapter 8 and the other synoptic gospels and the appearance of Moses with him certainly was meant to convey that this is like that. Although it's also meant to convey that this is greater than that, isn't it? He's not, we're not supposed to read this and say, oh, Jesus is on par with Moses. We're not supposed to see that at all. We are supposed to see that Jesus was kind of the new Moses, the prophet like Moses foretold back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, which we'll look at in a minute, but also that Jesus was the one greater than Moses, as Hebrews chapter 3 tells us in the first six verses. What's the difference? Jesus' glory is not derived. Jesus' glory is not a reflection of someone else's glory the way Moses was. This was his own glory as the Son of God incarnate. And it was a preview of the glory that was to come in his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coronation at the right hand of God. He was going to suffer many things, even as he said, but his glory was sure to follow. And this is one of the things that he is certainly trying to impress upon the disciples now, as if that wasn't enough, as if, as if his shining glory and Moses and Elijah being there along with him weren't enough already. There's a voice from the glory cloud there saying what? It sounds very familiar. This is my beloved son, verse 7. Listen to him. Now that, I hope, in your minds, calls to mind Deuteronomy 18.15. It's, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but if, if you're the kind of person that highlights in your Bible, um, I'm, I'm one of those odd people that does that. Maybe you don't make any marks in your Bible. I'm not going to tell you to don't go against your conscience. But if you're the kind of person that highlights certain key passages... Deuteronomy 18.15 should be one of those passages. It's one of the most important prophetic passages in your entire Bible, certainly in the entire Old Testament. And this is what it says, Deuteronomy 18.15. This is Moses talking to the people before he died. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And then he adds, It is to him you shall or you must listen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Not just another prophet. That's a given. A prophet like me from among your brothers, from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, there has not yet arisen another prophet like Moses. In other words, that Joshua wasn't it. Joshua wasn't the one prophesied and promised in Deuteronomy 18.15, he was the next one, but he wasn't the one. He wasn't the one that was to come, the one like Moses, but yet greater than Moses. Who is that? It's Christ. And how do you see the connection here? What, is, what does the voice from the glory cloud say? 
To him you must listen. It's, it's, it's practically word for word the same thing as the end of Deuteronomy 18, 15. It is to him you shall listen, or it is to, or it is to him you must listen. And note those last words, that we must listen to God's Son. We must listen to Jesus Christ. If God spoke through Moses and Elijah in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, and he certainly did, how much more ought we to listen to the, when God speaks to us through his only begotten Son? In a sense, that's, you could almost say that's the entire message of the book of Hebrews. If that, if that was authoritative and had to be listened to, how much more when God speaks through his son. There is no one else to go to. Even the apostles themselves said in John chapter 6, you are the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Where else can you go to have the words of eternal life? There is nowhere else. You must listen to, you must heed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to have life and salvation in him. Well, what about us? And this is one of, those, one of those events where it's kind of hard to maybe get a takeaway from it. Like, what am I supposed to get out of this? You know, we're almost in the shoes, if I could put it this way, of the other nine. You know, they're down the hill, and even on the way down the hill, what does Jesus tell the other three? Keep this to yourselves. <laughs> it's like a running theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says something and then goes, shh, you know, don't, don't tell a soul. You know, don't talk about it. You know, we don't talk about, about uh, Transfiguration Club, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about that. And then he says, until after the resurrection. And then what do you see again the disciples saying? What's this resurrection stuff he's talking about? It's, it's not the first time he's told them. And they're still scratching their heads about it. But what are you and I supposed to get from this event? What are, we, what are some lessons that we are to take from it? You might be surprised to know that your New Testament actually refers to the transfiguration and to the event with Moses' face shining multiple times. The apostles, both Peter and Paul, bring it up in their, in their letters. You know, Peter, you know, the, the, the guy that we think of first and foremost as being the witness of, the one who said, hey, it's great that we be here, it's good that we be here, let's make some tents. In his second epistle, uh, he tells us that he and the other two apostles at the transfiguration, quote, Second uh, Peter one sixteen, he says, "We were eyewitnesses of his majesty." You know, that, you know, if you're if you're getting that letter, if you're one of the recipients of that second letter, you might be thinking, "Oh, you're just bragging." Yeah, we get it. You're an apostle. Thanks, Peter. We're already listening. He says, "We were eyewitnesses of his of his majesty," and he says that they heard firsthand the voice of God the Father saying, "Quote, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Now. Why does Peter bring it up? Just to brag, just to you know, kind of put it in their face and say, hey, remember, I'm an apostle, you're a little guy, I'm a big guy, you're not that important. No, he says in the next verses, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by, by the Holy Spirit. So what's he saying? He's saying, you know, I got to see the glory of Christ. I got to audibly hear the voice of God the Father out of that cloud saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Neat experience. That's an understatement. But he got to see that, he got to hear that, but then what does he say for the people in the church? 
But guess what? You have something better than that. You have something more important than that. And what is that? The scriptures. You have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You don't just have the Old Testament. You have the Old Testament fulfilled and opened up to your view as to what it actually meant. You have, a, you have an understanding of what all those Old Testament books were pointing forward to. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he says in verse 19 that we would what? Do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's not an accident that he picks those words. I got to see Jesus' face shining. We still have Jesus' face shining. We have his word shining as a lamp in a dark place. We don't get to see the glory of Christ yet in this life. But we have the word of God shining like a lamp for us in a dark world. And it's more important than having some kind of experience on the top of a mountain like Peter, James, and John did. Not only that, but the ministry of the gospel of Christ has a glory in it that far surpasses the glory of that of Moses, as glorious as Moses' ministry was. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, Paul makes great usage of, uh, and brings up to, some, to, to a great extent what happened to Moses on top of the mountain. In 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18, Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, Moses' glory, as much as, as bright as it may have been, as scary as it even was for the Israelites to see it, it was fading. It wasn't, like a, it wasn't his glory. It was kind of the afterglow fading away as he came down, down the mountain. It says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, sounds like a whole other sermon. Yeah, you know, it, he's saying, hey, you know that thing that happened to Moses? As great as that sounds, guess who that's happening to even right now? You. Now, not physically, you're not glowing. I don't see anybody's face shining and glowing as happy as I am to see everybody here. Uh, no one's face is glowing. But he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all, not, not just Paul on the Damascus Road, not just Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain, we all with unveiled face, we understand that like the veil has been lifted from the Old Testament scriptures for us in Christ. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being, and notice the same word, transformed, same word as transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Not only will all who are in Christ one day finally share in his glory when he returns, but we also share in, in a transfiguration of sorts in this life, as we behold the glory of the Lord in his word. As we behold the glory of the Lord in his word, the Lord himself by his spirit over time 
transforms you and I bit by bit more and more into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Think about that. It doesn't feel like glory sometimes, does it? But it really is. It's, it's, a, it's the first fruits or the first part of what is to become later in its entirety. Think about the privilege you and I have in Christ by faith. Be made more and more like Christ until the day when he appears. And as John says in 1 John 3, 2, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ is not content to wait for us to have any of his glory until the last day. He's, he's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Even now, in this life, while we wait till the day when we get to see him finally face to face, and as, as the Bible says, when we see him, uh, we shall be made like him, because we shall see him, what? As he is. We, we shall see the glory of the Lord, and when we see it, he will be finally conformed fully to the image and glory of Christ. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, this the transfiguration. We thank you for all the things that we can learn from it. We thank you for the testimony it is uh, with, with Moses and Elijah being there and testifying, in a sense, to the truthfulness of Jesus as the Christ. We thank you for the way they led and pointed forward to him. We thank you for the way that they shared in his glory, just like we too one day, by your grace, will share in the glory of Christ if we are in him by faith, by your grace. We thank you for these great truths. We ask that you would help us to grasp them, help us to remember them, help us to look forward to them, help, help us help your people everywhere who might be suffering for the gospel even now, whether it be here or somewhere on the other side of the world. Give, give us each grace, give them grace uh, to meditate and to think about the promise of glory that the sufferings that we endure, your people endure in this life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in the sons of God one day. And we thank you for working in us even now and changing us by your spirit more and more from one degree of glory to another until the day that we finally see Christ and are made like him when we see him as he is. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.